and welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, and I am broadcasting from WOUF Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you once again for joining me. Hey, if you haven't clicked subscribe or that follow button, be sure you go ahead and do so. I come out with new episodes every Wednesday morning full of dog training information, general dog information, animal info, all kinds of good stuff. You're going to want to check it out. And of course, if you haven't clicked that five-star review and you are on Apple Podcasts, do me a favor. Stop what you're doing right now. If you like what you're hearing, click that five-star rating for me. I'd love some great feedback. And of course, we appreciate it. It helps the podcast grow. Now, today we have an awesome show lined up. The first segment is going to be why you should say no to your dog. Very important part of training that we've got to understand the how and why of. Then we're going to have our breed of the week followed by a new segment we're going to be featuring uh, from time to time. This segment is going to be called Dogs and Pets of the Ancient World. Yeah, it's going to be kind of cool. We're going to hone in uh, each time we do this segment. We'll hone in on a specific civilization or maybe a time period, uh, some point in history where we can sort of highlight the importance of dogs, pets, and the role that they played in helping that society develop. So really cool stuff. So we'll be focusing on one specific civilization today. Then we're going to have our listener Q&A. And if you guys have any questions for the listener Q&A, whether it be dog-related, animal-related, training-related, anything to do with animals at all, pass it over my way. Questions at speakadogcast.com. And of course, we've been starting those virtual training sessions. And if you guys want to train your dog with me at home virtually, we can do it together. You're just going to email me, questions at speakadogcast.com. Tell me a little bit about what's going on, and uh, we'll make a great training plan that's fit for you and your family. But of course, I got to give you a trivia question, guys, before we get this podcast going today. Today's trivia question is going to be, what breed is also known as the Mexican hairless dog? Yes, what breed is also known as the Mexican hairless dog? I'll give you the answer to that question today in the podcast, so be sure you stick around, sit, stay, and enjoy the show. Next on Speak a Dogcast, why you should say no to your dog. Yes, I am excited about this segment today. Might have a few things to say about it. And so we're going to actually start off with a disclaimer. Yes, <laughs> my disclaimer of I might get a little bit on my soapbox today. If you've listened to me before, I have opinions and I like to share them. Isn't that why I started a podcast? Um, but, you know, I'm going to attempt to not jump on the soapbox here today. Okay, but the title of this segment is Why You Should Say No to Your Dog. And interestingly enough, the psychology of working with animals is the same as psychology of working with humans. Now, I don't have a human podcast. I have a dog podcast. But if I had a human podcast, maybe this would be called Why You Should Say No to Your Child. <laughs> like I said, I don't have a human psychology podcast. I have a dog psychology podcast. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to try to stick to that today. But, but I say psychology is psychology is psychology. It doesn't matter whether you're dealing with a dog, bird, cat, human, monkey. It, it, it doesn't matter. Or a human monkey hybrid. Uh, <laughs> human monkey, it's what it sounded like. Uh, no, but it doesn't matter. The principles of psychology stay the same. And whether you want to accept those principles, that's up to you. Whether you accept them or not, though, they don't change. <laughs> the rules stay exactly the same, whether you want to recognize, accept, and understand them or not. 
So again, I am going to attempt to not jump on the soapbox today. We are going to attempt to keep this dog-centric here, and that's where we're going to go. So let's get going with this topic, why you should say no to your dog. And the first thing I want to ask everybody is a question. I want to ask you guys a question. And the first question I'm going to ask you is, who's in control? You or your dog? Who's in control? You or your dog? And oh my gosh, the, the one response that I get to this that I can't stand is when owners are proud of the fact when they say, oh, my dog's in control. They love it. They love it. They go, oh yeah, I can't. He pulls me down the street and barks at every dog. It's adorable. He gets really possessive over me. It's really cute. He barks at me at five o'clock every day and tells me it's time to eat. It's absolutely adorable. He yells at me in the crate until I let him out and say, oh, it's 3 a.m., but he wants to be out of the crate, so I let him. It's He jumps on the table and eats the food. It's the cutest thing. Really? <laughs> I don't understand it, guys. I'm sorry. I don't get why people think it's adorable and it's desirable to let your dog control you. Because quite frankly, it's unhealthy and it's not correct. You know? Um, everything else aside, from the psychological standpoint, from how a dog is hardwired, how their brains are wired, and how they work and operate, and letting them control you is the opposite of what they want. You heard me right, guys. Letting letting your dog control you is mentally unhealthy for them. Okay? There's no other way to put it. And I just have to be blunt about this. It's not healthy for your dog to control you. All right? So why? Right? Why? And I'll give you the answer to all this. I'm going to explain and I'm going to break it down here. But what is control, guys? When you think about it, what is control? And we've talked about this many times before on this podcast, but this goes back to instinct for every animal on this planet. Control equals stability. If you think about it, look at look at our society. We have control all over the place. A traffic light is a form of control. To me, driving in your car is is one of the most basic forms of control that's so easy to understand that, that we have to have every day. If we didn't have control with traffic, what would happen, guys? It'd be a free-for-all, and there'd be a lot more accidents and a lot more deaths on the road, okay? So control is a necessary thing in our lives that we have to have in order to create stability, in order to create balance. And every animal on this planet, dog, cat, bird, monkey, every animal on this planet wants one thing, stability, whether it's financial stability, again, you know, personal stability, relationship stability, uh, we all just want one thing, and that's stability in life. And the only way to create stability is through control. Now, the problem is, is your dog can't create stability by being in control of you. Okay? You know, the, the reality is that dogs are very smart animals. They really are. They're very smart, but they're only so smart. They aren't as smart as people. And when we take a dog and we put them in a human environment, we're really taking away that instinctual, natural world that they should have around them. And we're putting up these barriers, these walls, these, these controlling mechanisms that go against their natural instinct. And dogs that don't know how to deal with that end up trying to control everything around them. And that's when we get these possessive. We have a dog who hasn't been taught, hey, I'm in control. Don't worry about these boundaries around you. Don't worry. Food will come. Safety will come. The walk will come. The exercise will come. You'll be able to relieve. 
if your dog doesn't feel like you're in control of those variables, then they attempt to displace control in order to get it themselves, right? Because you're not providing it. Same could be said sometimes about children, but we're not going to go there today. <laughs> That's, I think I'm going to try to leave it at right, right there's where I'm drawing the line on that. Okay. Um, but children crave, ch- children crave control. Everybody, come on. Everybody knows that children crave control. They, they need it in their lives. That's how they learn how to be a productive member of society is through control. And if we don't create enough control, what happens? We don't have a productive member of society, guys. So it's no different in the dog world. If we don't establish that control, then we don't get a productive member of dog society. <laughs> okay. Look, how do you create control in your own life? You, you do it all the time and you may not realize it. Um, some people do it better than others in certain aspects of their life. And, you know, that's, isn't that the struggle, right? And that, that's the challenge. Get better at the things you're not as good at controlling. Um, diet. Diet's a perfect example. Look, guys, I love, I love sweets. I love cooking. I love to eat. And I like to eat good food. <laughs> what I call good food is probably food that's bad for you. I mean, not all, you know, I like to use real butter when I cook. I don't, I don't use anything fake. I don't use margarine. There's no margarine allowed in this house. Um, <laughs> you know, I like to eat good food, but I have to be careful. I have to eat in moderation. I can't just have, you know, a full chocolate cake every day of my life or it's going to kill me. So what is that? That's control. I have to control the amount I eat, right? Too much of anything. Too much of anything's not a good thing. So you create control all the time in your life. You say no to things all the time. So if I don't say no to sweets, if I don't say no to eating a full chocolate cake every day, I'm going to be in trouble. So we say no all the time to create control in our life. See, isn't that interesting? Saying no is actually just really a boundary. It's just, it's just a very, it's just a, a way to control, a way to control something. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, again, too much of anything is not a good thing. So saying no is necessary. It's healthy. And in the same can be said with your dog. You know, look, I, I would love to just have a beautiful filet mignon for dinner every night, covered in a delicious red red wine reduction, serve it with some scalloped potatoes, no vegetables. (laughs) I mean, I think I'm going to go cook that right now. No, but in all reality, I would love to just not even worry about the veggies. I'd like to stick, I'm a a steak and potato guy uh, most of the time, but I can't do that, can I? I can't, I have to say no to that. (laughs) I have to say no to that because it's not healthy. And saying no to that creates control, and that control creates more stability in my life. Apply that to your dog, right? So what happens to dogs that we never say no to? Behavioral issues. We get begging. We get controlling the playtime. Okay, we talked about it. They go in and out of the crate telling you when it's time to eat. It's not good stuff, you know? We don't want to let our dogs control us because it's just not as mentally healthy for them. You know, we've heard it. And I'm not going to, you know, we've heard of the, the hierarchy in a dog's world, right? Where we have the alpha, the beta, the blah, 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 blah. The way I look at it is a little more basic. We have the leader and we have everybody else that follows, right? We can't create that leader in the pack. We can't create it without creating some sort of control, without another dog telling another dog, a dog no at some point. <laughs> without putting a boundary up, we're not going to ever figure out who that leader is. So... By not saying no to your dog, 
you're never really establishing who's in control. And then they feel like they need to step it up and they need to be in control. They have a back and forth battle for control, right? Now, I can hear some of you out there already going, well, David, I don't understand. Shouldn't a dog be a dog? Aren't dogs supposed to do that? Aren't they supposed to come bark at you when they want something? Aren't they supposed to come? Da, 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 da. I can hear it. I, and I, I understand. <laughs> Look, I want a dog to be a dog too. But as I've talked about before, to me, what a dog being a dog is, is, you know, I tell my clients this all the time. Look, if you, if you want me to train your dog to be like this perfect regimented military style dog, I, I can, but it's not my preference. You know, this perfect heel, this perfect, this, this perfect. Da, 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 da. I don't need my dogs to be at like my beck and call. I need my dogs to, to, to listen when I need them to. And that's what I tell my clients. I want my dog to be a dog, but when it's time to stop playing, it should be time to stop playing. When it's time to go out, it's time to go out. When it's time to come in, it's time to go in. When it's time to eat, it's time to eat. When I tell you to stay, you need to stay. And I believe it's the same way with kids. There's the line again, not going any further than that. Uh, <laughs> but that's how I was raised. That's how I was raised. Um, you know, we were we were allowed to have fun and be kids for the most part. Uh, but <laughs> when my parents needed us to focus, when they needed our attention, when they needed us to stop or come inside even, you know, we knew to. We listened to them. We respected that because we knew where the boundaries were. My parents told us no. And in doing so, I, 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 I understood what was expected of me. So it's no different, guys. I want my dog to be a dog. I want them to go play and have fun. Hell, I let my dogs roll around and get dirty. And I mean, really, you know, I, I want my dogs to be dogs. But when it's time to stop playing, it's time to stop playing. And you need to be able to have that control. And there's no way to establish that control without saying no to your dog. I know. It's not what you want to hear. Look, guys, I tell people all the time, like, I wish I could just give my dogs, my client dogs too, I wish I could give all the dogs I work with just affection and food and and pixie dust. Wouldn't that just be great? <laughs> Wouldn't it just be wonderful if we could live in the land of magic and make-believe? But that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You know, I said, uh, I, I've, I've had clients say to me after a dog comes to me for like a three-week boot camp, and I'll bring the dog back. And when I bring the dog back home, yeah, I start using a lot of treats. We kind of go back to the beginning of, you know, I have to use a lot of treats when I bring a dog in a new situation when they don't fully know my expectations so I can target and reinforce behaviors I like so they learn the expectation and pattern and bop, 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 so on and so forth, right? So a client will say to me, they see me using all these treats and they'll go, oh, oh, the dog's only, the dog's only, he's listening really well, but he's only listening because you have the food. And of course, my response is, do you really think I just spent three weeks with your dog and just handed them treats for three weeks and they, they magically just listen perfectly because of that? Absolutely not. It's because I told your dog no <laughs> a thousand times in those three weeks to make them understand where the boundaries are. Saying no is a boundary. Okay, so if I have a dog who jumps up on people, I'm going to tell them no when they jump up and correct the behavior, Right? What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, that's what you should be doing. Okay. So again, I, I wish, wouldn't it just be great if we could all sit in a circle, hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but not the way it works. <laughs> you cannot get your dog to just magically start behaving. You can't without saying no. Okay. Even, even just not giving into them is saying no not rewarding behavior when they come demand things. That's saying no. 
I encourage you to say no to your dogs, but do it in a way that's healthy. If you say, if you look, if you did nothing but tell your dog no, then your dog's going to not like you very much. So you have to decide and be very, very crisp and consistent and black and white about it. You have to decide where the boundary is on one side of behavior and where the boundary is on the other side. I often say, I look at behavior like a linear line, right? One extreme of that linear line, we have fight. The other extreme, we have flight. Everything in the middle is where most dogs live their lives, right? But you have to decide where on that line you want the boundary for your parameters for behavior, your expectations for their behavior to be. Okay, that's up to you. And if you make those boundaries very black and white and crisp and clear to your dog and you reinforce them when they stay within the boundary and you redirect and tell them no when they're outside the boundary, then you're going to give them a very black and white message. You're going to make it easy for them to understand. And now you're providing reward and boundary, reward and no. (laughs) Okay, so again, I encourage you to use the word no with your dog know how you're using the word no with your dog, make sure you're strategic with it. And of course, don't forget, don't forget, guys, there's always that side note. Make sure you're reinforcing your dog once they do the right thing. Make sure you tell them yes (laughs) once they do the right thing. Because of course, we honed in on that no side today. But don't forget to tell them yes when they do something right. Give them a treat, praise them, make sure you reward and strengthen behaviors you like as well. But don't be afraid to tell your dog no. Next up on Speak Dogcast, it's our Breed of the Week. This week's Breed of the Week is the Basset Hound. Now, of course, the Basset Hound, they're members of the Hound Group. They are a scent hound. And just about as docile and calm as they come, the Basset Hound found its way into the hearts of dog lovers through their low-key demeanor and charming looks. While at home, this dog is known for worldly just lounging about and naps on the couch. However, the Basset Hound was bred as a scent hound, and that nose is strong. The Basset is ranked only second to the Bloodhound for their abilities with their nose, and when they are out on the trail, these guys can become determined. While they might not be the fastest dog on the trail, they will be the one who stays on it the longest. They're built for stamina, not speed. And sometimes their abilities and focus can make them a bit stubborn, so training these dogs is not always easy, but with consistency and a lot of patience, they can do very well. The Basset Hound is known for being great with people and children. They, Because of this, you know, they don't make the best guard dogs. Really, they just love people. Bassets do need a moderate amount of exercise. A good daily brisk walk is necessary, not only for mental stimulation, but keeping them in good physical shape as well. These guys can put on weight easily, so it's important to stay on top of that, keeping them at a healthy weight. A Basset Hound kept overweight, well, guys, it's asking for trouble. Yes, with their short stature and long back, an overweight pup can create all kinds of health issues. And speaking of health issues, definitely a few to be aware of. Uh, We have hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, Von Wilbrand's disease, hypothyroidism, and some eye issues such as cherry eye can be common among them as well. Now, also, giant ears, right? We've got those big ears. Got to make sure they're staying clean, free of debris, and that the skin is always healthy too. So got to be on top of keeping those ears clean. Now the history of the Basset Hound is traced back to France and Belgium. The word Basset actually means low in French, referring to their short stature being low to the ground. The Basset Hound most likely developed from the St. Hubert Hound. Now the St. Hubert Hound is the ancestor to the modern day Bloodhound, And while breeding these dogs, a mutation in the St. Hubert Hound produced a dwarfed hound. 
It was soon realized that this was advantageous to hunting small prey, such as rabbits, through thick forests. Now, being low to the ground made them also a little bit slower, and it made it easy for people to follow the dogs on foot as opposed to having to be on horseback. The Basset Hound originally gained popularity among the French aristocracy, where hunting was a way of life. The Basset was imported to England in the 19th century when a man named Lord Galway imported a male and a female. These dogs had a litter of five pups in 1866, but Lord Galway did not show the dogs and the breed remained relatively unknown. Then in 1874, Sir Everett Malaise imported a Basset Hound from France named Modell. He began a breeding program at his kennel, and with the help of other British noblemen, the breed started gaining popularity. Malaise is actually considered the father of the breed in England. He first showed a Basset in 1875, but it was not until 1882 that the Basset was added and accepted to the Kennel Club of England, and in 1884, the English Basset Hound Club was formed as well. Now, although the breed most likely came over to the U.S. during colonial times, it was not until the 20th century that the breed gained popularity. In 1928, Time Magazine featured a Basset Hound on the cover and ran a story about the 52nd Annual Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show happening at Madison Square Garden. It was after this that the popularity of the breeds started to climb, and the Basset Hound then entered pop culture in the pop culture world in the 1960s, becoming advertising icons for Hush Puppy Shoes. Now, in the 60s, it also saw the creation of the Fred Bassett comic strip, which still runs today. Then, of course, there's one of the most famous Bassets in cartoon history. Originally created in 1943, Droopy from the Merry Melodies cartoons eventually joined the Looney Tunes gang. And, you know, if you grew up with Droopy, you can still hear him saying his signature line with a straight face. I'm so happy. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services, such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and now offering virtual training as well. For more information, check out our website, www.thenatureoftraining.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. Located in beautiful Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. Next up on Speak Dogcast, it's a new segment called Dogs and Pets of the Ancient World. Now, I've talked about it before that I'm a little bit of a history buff. I do enjoy reading and learning about history. And of course, if we can combine animals and pets and dogs and history together, even better, right? So, you know, I've been kind of working on this new segment here, and and, and I've really been trying to gather some information on different cultures, different societies, different ge- geographical regions, and how animals came into play in these, in, in, you know, in these societies. And to me, it's fascinating because, you know, we always, we always should learn from history. I think that's also why it's important that we read and know and understand history is we need to be able to know where we came from to know where we're going, right? For that before. Uh, and it's so true. 
And it's the same thing even with something as simple as like a dog or a pet. You know, I, I think it's important as a professional in the animal world um, that I at least try to broaden my knowledge base as much as I possibly can. And to me, having that historical perspective and understanding of dogs is is really important. Dogs, pets, and animals in general. So we're going to feature, like I said, like a different country or region or maybe time uh, to talk about how pets and animals influenced those societies. And today we're going to start with, I think, one of the, I mean, one of the most obvious ones, ancient Egypt, right? We all know it. Ancient Egypt, animals and Egypt just go hand in hand, whether it's their gods or goddesses, paintings, um, their culture was just so intertwined with animals. It really was that I felt like it was a really appropriate place to start, you know, and ancient Egyptians, they loved their animals so much so that they had lots of different pets and their pets were very important to them, just as important as our pets are to us today. You know, they took great care of their pets when they were alive, and they even gave them some of the same ritual and treatment and care of the afterlife that they gave to humans. Now, they kept dogs as pets, cats, birds, and even more exotic animals. They would keep monkeys, falcons, hippos, all kinds of crazy stuff. But the most commonly kept animal in ancient Egyptian times, you can probably guess that it was, well, it was the cat. Yeah, without a doubt, cats were the most popular household pet. Now, obvious reasons, cats help provide pest control. They keep out unwanted vermin and snakes. But cats also actually had a close association with the goddess Bestet. So people believed by keeping the cats, it brought them closer to this goddess, right? The cats became so synonymous with ancient Egypt that the word cat is actually derived from the North African word for the animal, Perhaps, you know, maybe excuse my pronunciation, but I believe it's pronounced Quata or something like that. And, you know, so closely was the association of Egypt and that word for cat that almost all European languages use some variation of the word. It's really kind of cool. You know, in Italy, it's Gatto. In Spain, it's Gatto. Swedish, cat, K-A-T-T. German, cats, K-A-T-Z-E. And so on, right? The cats were ho- uh, so highly regarded that the penalty for killing a cat, even by accident, was death. Yeah. Now, even exporting cats from Egypt, exporting them out of the country, it became strictly prohibited. And the Egyptians even dedicated an entire branch of their government whose sole purpose was to travel to other countries, find the cats, and bring them back home. Now, while cats were plentiful in ancient Egypt, dogs, of course, they had their place in the ancient world as well. Now, dogs had their practical purposes too, hunting, police and military work, even back, even that far back in time, they were using dogs for police and military work and guard duty. These were just a few of the tasks that they performed. Now, the breeds that existed in ancient Egypt, they're some of the oldest dog breeds in the world. The Basinji, the Ibizan, Saluki, Greyhound, Whippet, and the Pharaoh were all breeds referenced through images on rock carvings and writings. Some of these breeds are thought to be the inspiration for Anubis, and Anubis is the dog god who guided souls of the deceased to the Hall of Truth, where the souls would be judged by the god Osiris. So clearly, you know, uh, Anubis was a very important god, and they held it very high esteem, and that's why the dogs were a close correlation uh, or, or, you know, a close association with the god. The dogs were also valued, highly valued in the home of Egyptians. Great care would even be taken in the same mummification processes that were used on humans. Dogs were regularly buried with their owners, even having their names recorded alongside of them. Some of the tombs showed, some of the tombs that uh, would show that the dog was actually killed at the time of the master's death, 
while others show that the dogs pass well before their owners with that same care being taken even years before their owner's death. As Egyptians believed in the afterlife, one could bring their personal belongings with them. Now, of course, that included their beloved pets. Other animals such as monkeys, baboons, hippos, giraffes, and gazelles were also kept as pets. Perhaps not as common as a dog or cat, exotic animals actually displayed a status symbol of wealth and power, being able to care for and command over such a wild animal. Now, it did not matter the size or species, Egyptians loved their pets every bit as much as we do today. Next up on Speak Dogcast, it's our listener Q&A. The first question today comes from Eric from Plantation, Florida. Eric says, I have a miniature pincher who gets very excited anytime somebody comes or goes from the house. Now She'll get so excited that she starts to spin uncontrollably. Why does she do this and how do I get her to stop? You know, Eric, behaviors like this are obsessive, right? We, we it, it ends up displacing in a physical way, but... It's obsessive nonetheless. And when I see an obsessive behavior, usually that means there's there's some anxiety that's been happening. Now, anxiety, as I've talked about previously, is sort of a sort of a blanket term. You know, overexcitement can be anxiety, fear can be anxiety, and everything in between. Now, I also like to say that I, I want your dogs to be happy and excited to see you, but not overexcited and needing to see you. And clearly, this is kind of falling more toward that spectrum, right? So why does she do this? Uh, Look, as I always say, I can't tell you exactly why an animal chooses to make the decision that they do short of being able to ask them. And clearly, she's not going to be responding to me tomorrow. So So we kind of have to just speculate that what ends up happening is dogs end up finding a behavior that works for them. It may not be logical, it may not actually work for them, but they feel that it does. And if they feel that it works for them and they get something out of it, they're going to continue doing it. And then they end up getting almost in this like uh, um, obsessive cycle, right? Dogs can only focus on one thing at a time. They have a one-track mind. And so if they become so obsessed with something like saying hi to your guests or your guests leaving... And then they get so excited that it gets more excited. And then it gets reinforced in strength and it becomes more excited. It gets so excited that uh, then they have to like, oh my God, I got to uh, get it out somehow. And they start spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. That's how these kind of behaviors end up displacing, right? It's all this like built up energy from this anxiety that has to go somewhere. <laughs> the energy has got to be displaced somehow. And so the dog chooses something like spinning. That's kind of the why behind it. Now, how do you get her to stop? First thing I'm going to tell you is, of course, you know, you need to exercise your dog more. I can I can already tell you that right now. Um, a lot, you know, mo- more often than not, when you have an obsessive behavior like this, it's because your dog is not getting enough stimulation, not getting enough exercise. They get all this built up energy because they're not getting it out, and boom, displacement into the spins. Right. Um, so definitely get your dog on a proper walk. Listen to the segments on doing the proper walk because you do need to be doing a proper walk. Uh, get them some more exercise, maybe some more playtime. That's a good place to start. Now, how do you actually get them to stop? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to leash your dog up anytime somebody comes or goes. If you've got, now obviously I know you can't set this up exactly every time and you may not know exactly when someone's going to knock at your door every day. But if you know you have a friend coming over, tell them to text you two minutes before they get there and leash up your dog. 
then you're going to utilize your leash and collar and not let your dog spin. Just don't let it happen. And then on top of that, you can redirect the focus back to you, trying to maybe ask for a sit, a stay. See if you can't reward that with a treat and keep the focus on you. Going back to that one track mind, if your dog is focused on you, and worried about the information you're trying to convey to them, they're going to be less worried about the person coming or going and less worried about spinning. And before you know it, you're breaking that physical habit. And then you're creating a new physical habit of someone comes and goes and I sit down and relax. I sit down and get fed. Okay. And then you can break that old way. So first thing you want to do, more exercise, more stimulation. Next thing you want to do, leash them up when somebody's coming and going and try to, third thing is going to be try to redirect that focus into something different, like a sit and a stay, being able to reward it with treats. Next question. This comes from Jared from Austin, Texas. Jared says, my wife and I currently have a 14 year old dog who's getting obviously a little bit old. My eight-year-old son wants to get a new puppy, but we don't want to stress out the older dog, so we're going to wait until he passes away. In the meantime, we wanted to get my son uh, a different kind of pet. What would you recommend? This is a great question, you know. Now, obviously, your son is eight years old. He's, he's old enough to start taking on some responsibility, and that's awesome. What a great way to, to teach him responsibility by getting a, a nice small pet. Now, there's a lot of different a lot of different ways you can go with this, <laughs> you know, it really depends. Um, you know, I'll start with saying it doesn't have to be a hamster. It really doesn't. It doesn't have to be a hamster. Um, you know, it's funny, it's a side note here, when I was growing up, my mom actually had a rule in our household that, you know, when we got small animals, they weren't allowed to have a tail. <laughs> that was her rule. They weren't allowed to have a tail. It reminded her of rats. She really doesn't like rats. And the, it's the tail that kind of grosses her out. Hey, you know, I, I get it. Just, I do. I understand. Um, but it's funny because that was always, that was the rule growing up. So we had hamsters. We had guinea pigs. <laughs> we had everything that didn't have a tail. Um, so, you know, I don't know what your rules are and what your restrictions will be. But there's, like I said, a lot of different animals. Look, we can start with the hamster route. Hamsters, they're pretty easy to care for. At the same time, yeah, you got to change the litter often, food and water daily. Uh, you know, you can't give them a water bottle, last a few more days. But even then, you got to make sure they're not empty. You have to make sure that they're that that everything's staying full. And that goes to, you know, it goes with any kind of small animal that's furry like that. Um, so other thing with hamsters, they're escape artists. You know, <laughs> they really are. When we were little, our hamsters used to get out all the time. It was a big problem. We'd have to seal it up. We'd even put duct tape over the holes. And these older cages aren't as good as some of the newer ones. Still, it's a hamster. They'll find a way out. Um, so, you know, they, they can be a good pet. Some of them can be very snuggly and, and, and that's awesome. But it does take a little bit of upkeep. And that goes to say the same thing with like a, a guinea pig. Now, I like guinea pigs. I think they have awesome personality. Guinea pigs can be a little noisy at night. Uh, they do make their little squeaking noises. They do tend to chew. Sometimes they'll chew on the side of the cage. Uh, but they can be a great little fun companion to have. They do make a little bit of a mess. Are going to have to be cleaning that litter regularly, just like a hamster. Food and water daily, that kind of stuff as well. Now, one of the animals that people really love, ferrets. I'll be honest, a ferret is not necessarily the best pet for an eight-year-old, okay? Ferrets are very active. They can be destructive. Yes, they can be litter box trained. That's a plus, but they do need a lot of activity and stimulation, okay? Um, and ferrets can bite. I mean, any of these animals can bite. They're animals, guys. They, they have the potential to bite. That's uh, a part of it. Uh, but a ferret bite, ferrets definitely have bigger teeth. They're a bigger animal. So kind of keep that in mind. 
that ferrets may not be the best fit for you. And I would rather you guys do your research and know what's a good fit and what's not a good fit than end up with a pet that maybe you don't want. Uh, so ferrets, look, rats can be a phenomenal pet. I know most people think rats are gross like my mom, <laughs> but they can actually be a great pet. Same thing though, regular litter changing, water, food daily, that kind of stuff. But they really, they have a lot of personality too. They're highly trainable. You can actually train rats. Yes, you heard me. I've done it before. I've trained them to do an agility course. Uh, so they can be fun to interact with for a kid to teach fun things like that. You can, especially with the internet nowadays, man, you can look up YouTube videos on how to train them. Uh, so rats can be a fun animal if he really wants some good interaction. Now, let's jump over to the reptile side. I know some people are squirming in their seats thinking about it, but guys, reptiles are low maintenance for the most part. Some of them more than others are high maintenance, but for the most part, it's like, let's talk about snakes. A ball python can be a great pet. A corn snake can be a good place to start, um, but it is a snake, right? It is a snake. Snakes have the potential to bite too. Ball pythons are known for being very docile, very calm, very just, they don't want to bite. They'd rather curl into a ball and hide their head. So it can be a good starter snake. However, a ball python can live 20 years, even up above 20 years. So it is a commitment right? Do your research and, and know what you're getting into. But a ball python requires very minimal maintenance, very minimal cage maintenance. They don't have any special lighting needs. Uh, you know, they don't need to be fed every day, water as needed. You know, the reptiles do become a lot easier. Now, one of my favorite reptiles, blue tongue skink, something you don't necessarily see every day, but a blue tongue skink, they're really cool. They do get a little big, about two and a half feet with tail, but they're a little slower. They're not as fast as like a bearded dragon. <laughs> uh, they can be very chill. They do have some special dietary needs, some special lighting needs. They are omnivores. Uh, so that's something you have to take into consideration. But that's a good one to look up, a blue tongue skink, especially if your son is definitely ready to be responsible and step it up. That's a good one as well. Um, so really, guys, I mean, there's there's so many different ones. We could get off chinchillas. Like, we, I haven't even, we haven't even talked about them. Um, I could spend easily another 15 minutes. Maybe we'll have to do a segment on on this. What else makes a good pet besides a dog? This, this could be a good segment. Uh, but I kind of hope that information gets you off to a good start there, Jared. And, and in the meantime, and, and I love that you guys are not necessarily jumping right into getting another puppy right away. That's fantastic that you're taking your other dog's needs into consideration. Um, because sometimes that's not always the best fit to bring a young dog into a house with an older dog. Uh, not, not, not always the best fit. So I appreciate that you guys are thinking that through and trying to do what's best for your family, for your dog and for your son. So that's awesome. Kudos to you guys, but hey, hope that info helps out. And hey, like I said, maybe I'll have a segment coming up all about what makes the best pets for kids. The answer to today's trivia question, what breed is also known as the Mexican hairless dog? It's the Zolo Itzquentle. Also abbreviated as the Zolo, it is a hairless breed of dog found in toy, miniature, and standard sizes. However, it does also come in the coated variety. <music> That'll wrap up the podcast today. Thank you guys so much for listening in. Hey, if you haven't clicked that five-star review, be sure you go ahead and do so if you love what you're hearing. And if you have any questions for that listener Q&A, email me, questions at speakadogcast.com. Have a wonderful week, and don't forget to get out there and walk your dog. <laughs>